The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The most important thing about your business could be how your products are packaged. Packaging is the signature that you leave everywhere, and it speaks volumes about who you are and what you do. This is Ditch the Box with David Marinak. In today's show, we'll talk about marketing, increased sales, and how it relates to product packaging. Have you explored alternatives like flexible packaging? You should. It can save your company a bundle. Now, here is David Marinak. Welcome to Ditch the Box. Our guest today is certainly a friend of the program in our sleepy little company in Cleveland, Ohio, ABC Direct and StandUpPouches.net. Jason Wong has close to 20 years experience in the food business. From founder and president of Asia Foods LLC, where he developed a national network of sales brokers, distributors, and customers in multiple channels, such as mainstream grocery, natural food stores, and food service. On to being category sales manager, then national, national account sales manager, and director of marketing and new product development with American Roland Foods. And now he's vice president of sales at HFM Food Service in Hawaii, where I believe he said it was 80 degrees and sunny. Jason has been a strategic advisor and, more importantly, a friend of ours for years. Jason, welcome to the show. David, thanks for having me. I cannot think of anyone more appropriate to have here on the show than you, somebody that's got such experience in the retail industry. And between the people that you know and the things that you've done, I mean, goodness. So thank you for taking the time. Um, so let's just get right into it. Can you tell our listeners the four different grocery channels? You and I have talked a lot about this, and I think there's a fifth outlier, if you will. But you know, tell our, tell our listeners about the four different grocery channels and, and, and what companies are in those channels. Sure, David. You know, across the U.S., there there are four distinct main channels in in grocery. Uh, the first channel is going to be your mainstream grocery. These are going to be your Safeways, Kroger's, uh, regional such as Stop and Shop, Wegmans, Shoprite, uh, down in Got the Florida it. area, Publix. But they're really your everyday grocery store. They tend to have thirty, forty thousand SKUs on the shelf at any one time. Large, large footprints, uh, lots of people, but this is every big one you see driving your car down the street. Sure. Uh, the, set, the second one you're going to really see out there, it, it, which has been coming on strong in, say, the last 15, I would say the last 15 years, is going to be your natural food stores, uh, led by Whole Foods. You know, Whole Foods is all over mm. the news these days. It's been driving yeah. that natural organic trend here in the U.S., uh, but there's a whole natural channel. Uh, there is natural independence, but I guess, again, it's going to be smaller footprint. There's going to be less units here in the U.S. on natural, but a, a great channel. The third channel you're going to find out there is the club channel. This is really led by Costco, BJ's, and Sam's Club. Fourth, yep. you're going to find fourth you're going to find the mass merchandisers, and the mass merchandisers, the top two that come to mind, are going to be Target and Walmart. Uh, you mentioned earlier a, an outlier, and the outlier is going to be the military. Military has a, a huge amount of uh, 
buying power to service our men and women in uniform. But really, that's an outlier. It's a very distinct channel and uh, a little bit more difficult to get into, but uh, definitely worthwhile. And why I segment these is they all have the nuances on how you're going to sell to them. They have their own... own broker networks, their own requirements to do business. They're very distinct, and they take a lot of time. And your your value proposition has to be tweaked for each of those channels. Interesting. And again, that's and and part of that too, and what you were saying, and playing off of that is that so every so anytime you would be dealing with a food product for those for for those individual channels, you actually had to really and truly kind of create your own little pitch towards that channel because they are they act differently and respond differently is that is that what you were saying absolutely um things like i'll give you an example with costco costco's mantra to their customers or members is really to service them so their their profit model is on their membership so they're looking for products that benefit the member whereas very different from selling a product into say a Safeway or a Kroger where the the motive is profit and it's not always what's best for the customer so you have different goal different goals of each channel uh and the same could be said for that outlier of the military they're really looking for products that benefit the military members and align with the goals of the military so uh they really search for whole grains and things that aligned with the health and nutrition of the military families and more so in, wow. in the in the mainstream channel, it's it is trying to make money. So you have people that if you can show something that's going to make money, say an energy drink, or a snack product, uh, or a new nut, they're they're all over trying to make money. So just different things that you have to understand the channel before you go in and make that pitch. And we're going to get into more of that because that's this is fascinating to me because I don't think a lot of people realize how involved this really is i mean this is obviously it's gazillion dollar many 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 billion dollar uh a year um business but i mean goodness gracious you're right i don't think people really realize you gotta really think about who you know what channel you're selling to and and who those people are and what their respond what they respond to and what's their hot button if you will um and for the sake of all of us that don't have your experience if you will i'm going to ask you to take us back a few years uh, with some real life experiences, so our audience have an idea of a, a day in the life of Jason Wong, if you will. Um, you know what? Take me back when you know you were you were thinking about a new product, for example, or I don't know how that would work. So, would you guys get together? You'd get together with your team. Tell us what that was like. Did you have like a a blank sheet of paper and say, "Look, we're going to go after the rice pilaf market," or we're gonna we're gonna kind of you know how does that work initially to pitch a product at all regardless of the channel but you know developing that product from the very beginning can you can you kind of take us from scratch if you will sure yeah and in most of the projects that i've worked on on a product development basis i've taken it from concept all the way to distribution onto the shelf Um, and what's interesting is there's some illusions that people sit in this think tank in a room with a blank piece of paper right. and kind of think up, oh, wow, you know, I just figured out the the best new the best new drink for right. the category, this best new snack. And actually, you know what it's like, I, I and I kind of equate it to some of the uh, science publications that I read. And what you find is these new discoveries that people make is really connecting the dots on what's out there. 
trying to leverage, you know, something that's old with something that's new, uh, kind of like cuisine, where fusion was a big deal for a while, where they blended right. the right. best of some of these different types of cuisines. And what I found on a product development basis, where I came up with some of my best ideas, was actually walking up and down a supermarket uh, aisle, going into some of the natural food stores that are on the cutting edge, walking some of the trade shows that might not be for that channel, that might be a food service show, a restaurant show, and seeing what trends are coming over. Um, sitting down at a restaurant, when you're looking at the menu and some of these new chefs or cutting edge chefs, seeing what flavor profiles are coming on. And a great example I can give you is we worked on a, a truffle mac and cheese product at uh, when I was spending my time at Roland Foods. And right. what was interesting is they said, wow, how did, you, how did you think of that? And actually, it went back about five years earlier from when I thought about how to get that product going. I had a, a younger sister. She was 23, 22 at the time. And she came back to me and she's saying, wow, I'm, I love this restaurant I'm going to for lunch. And I said, well, what are you eating? I'm eating truffle mac and cheese. And I'm thinking truffle. Truffle for yeah. a 23, 22-year-old. What? What's going on? That's usually a stuffy, yeah. stuffy older person yeah, exactly. product, right? Yeah, 89-year-old guy having truffles. Yeah, right, exactly. So, you know, connecting the dots to see that these the younger generation was going after these older flavor profiles, but uh, blending it with a, a, a kid's food. You know, so you upscale the kid's food, that you fuse two of these flavors, sure. and why not take it off the menu and make it into a shelf-stable retail product with beautiful packaging. Um, it's connecting the dots. Just connecting the yeah. dots. And you'll, you'll, find them, you'll find that inspiration everywhere you go. And as a new product development person at Roland, for example, when you, when you brought that up, would you, okay, so you came up with the idea, but you were involved intimately with the entire stream of this. For example, not just, you know, you come up with truffle mac and cheese, if you were truffle, whatever, but what I'm getting at is um, then you go back and actually source the different ingredients, correct? I mean, you did all of that. Is that kind of how that worked? That's right. So once we, once we identified a concept, then we started breaking it down. So how, who's going to make it for us? Do we, if they're going to make it for us, are they a co-packer? Do we have to go source ingredients for them around the world? Do they have their own sourcing capabilities? What type right. of packaging is it going to be in? Now, the packaging, I would say, is absolutely key. Um, one of the things that I learned over the years going into all these different channels uh, on retail grocery is 99% of the time when I went into that presentation, the person never actually tried the product. They actually just took, at it, took it and looked at the package. And what did that Jeez. say? It just it just reinforced the fact that when people go to a retail store, they buy with their eyes. So that yeah. leads you to believe that packaging, packaging is such a key component to getting a p concept off the ground. And and it's amazing to me. Um, of course, that's right in my wheelhouse. But it's amazing to me how many places. Think about packaging at the very last minute. Oh, man, wait a minute. We've got this great coffee bean or we've infused this flavor or whatever it is like we were just talking about. And then, you know, literally a day before, a week before they're pitching it to a major retailer, um, they're thinking, well, give me what kind of packaging. Give me whatever you have. Give me a can. Give me a tin. And it's really missing out because the things that, that we've learned, you and I from working together, and as we've built our own businesses, really your packaging is the voice of your brand. It's that it's that voice for you when you're not there. And 
if you if you kind of don't spend the time, don't give it the effort that it deserves, you're actually asking yourself, you're positioning yourself for failure. You know, you got one shot to get someone's attention, and if you're saying, and I totally, I totally agree with you 100%, if you're saying that, you know, they rarely do they even open or try your product, it's the packaging, goodness, man, why aren't people spending more time planning and, 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 and looking at their packaging. And I find that, and I know you, you agree, is, is that's, the, that's the missing link here is, is the packaging. If we can convince people to do this uh, and, and focus more on this, you know, they have a better success rate when it comes to retail. Yeah, I would say, David, you know, one of the things that was interesting uh, when we started working together was packaging is, is usually a huge challenge for people. They don't, like you said, they don't realize how important it is until the last minute because they're they're right. they're passionate about their recipe. They think that their flavor profile is just is the best, and a lot of times it is. Right. But unfortunately, what right. I've seen out in the retail business here in the U.S. is that not always, and more often than not, the best flavors and the best product doesn't get on the shelf. And that's unfortunately just the way the business is. Um, I learned a lesson early on by one of my mentors, and they told me that the studies have shown that when somebody walks down the supermarket aisle with all those products to to your left of your eyes and to the right of your eyes, the packaging gives you three seconds to catch their person's attention in that sea of product. So the packaging, you got to have something that stands, that stands out. But what usually happens is you get these people that are very, very passionate about this flavor and they're developing this recipe and they get somebody to make it for them. And then they get to the packaging piece and they say, well, I really want this beautiful piece of custom packaging. And the, in the manufacturer, the co-packer will come back and say, well, you know what? You need to commit to 250,000 units or a million units of packaging because, because you know, that's what the minimum run is. And I think what I found working with you, David, was you took a lot of those barriers out of the way for me because of your flexibility in your manufacturing lines. I could go into prototyping. I could do some smaller runs to test them, to test and then to retest as we tweaked it. So it really gave me an easy way to get into the market without dying on those million-dollar runs or the million-unit runs. And that's and really the capital what helped. Expense that's, yeah, and the capital expense that you've got to be able to throw out there when you just are trying to see if, in fact, a, a flavor or a version is even going to fly. Well, and, that, and that's right. So put yourself in a, in a startup shoes. You know, you have a limited amount of capital. You've, you've had to do – you've had to pony up all of your money – and somebody says, well, you know what? I need you to put $100,000 into packaging. And the packaging is going to be a very small percentage of the overall sell price. So what happens is, is you say, okay, I've got to commit to 100000 250000 units of packaging, but I'm, and I'm only going to sell 5000 over the next 12 months. Right, right. You know, I don't care what your projections say. The, it takes a long time to ramp up in this industry. Uh, unless you hit it out of the park, say you're the next Red Bull or right. um, Coca-Cola, which you know more often than not you are not, um, it's a good three- to five-year ramp up in retail. Even in my, in my best categories, in my best products that I launched, time to maturity was three to five years because it's just such a, it's such a bear of a, of a market to go after. To stay with that a little bit more. The three to five year 
So you've got this great product, and now you've you've made inroads at a retailer, whether regardless of the channels. Say it's you know it's a it's Ralph's or something like that, a bigger bigger retailer or Wegmans. Um, so what does that mean that three to five year period? Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, let's let's just start with let's just assume we we finished the product. We've we've got it made. We've got the packaging. We've got the recipe, and we found a person to make it. We have all that done. Right. What's next? Well, I need to go knock on the retailer's door and say, Mr. Retailer, do you want to take this product? And you think it would be as easy as picking up the phone or getting on the Internet and finding an email and doing it. Well, first you've got to find – most of the time you've got to find a broker that knows the people within the organization there that has experience calling on them, understands the nuances of that particular retailer. So you get that broker. Then they say, okay, let's make the appointment. Oh, wait, hold on. We have to wait for a category review schedule. So let's just say we're in the uh, natural snack category. Okay, well, today's March 3rd. Well, you know what? We don't review natural snacks here at Ralph's until September. So what that means is you can't get an appointment to pitch your product until September. So we're, oh. six, months, we're six months away from making a presentation. But that, it gets worse. <laughs> and I don't mean to be negative on this because I actually love this industry. And there's a ton of potential to succeed. But let's say, okay, now September I make a presentation. And let's say it goes perfectly. They say, yes, we want it. Now they're not going to reset their shelves for that review until probably after Christmas. So you're into January of next year when they reset the shelves and you get your first order. So, you know, you're talking, there's a lot of lead time before you can get it on the shelf. So think about it. All these variables go in. You start getting some really, some good penetration on multiple retailers. It takes two to three years to go through the review schedules, get things up and running, get all the promotions in line to get some and to get some traction on your items. And then by five years, you've you've gone through the cycle of all the retailers. You've made presentations. You're really focusing in on getting more movement by each each store. But it, it's a good sure. three to five year ramp up. And that was the short version. Yeah, and that's you're exactly right. You did a good job of shortening that. But you're right on. I mean that's and, and and again, I love how you you put that in that you love the industry and that this is this is by no means discouraging to anybody. Trust me, there would not be people lining up, and they are at you know trying to get into the retailers, whatever the segment, um, because of you know there's a great way to make a make a make a nice living, and there's a you know when you and again when you're pitching these products and and their volume is you know grows and you know there's a it's obviously a um, there's a great opportunity to, to to build a very successful successful business, but yeah, that's just that's just crazy. So when you were um, developing these products, for example, and coming up with these ideas, I gotta believe, and I'm, I'm just answering my own question. I've gotta believe that you guys had, had it kind of would look out and say, well, if it's a particular type of rice pilaf, for example, and we do want to ultimately sell this to Whole Foods. We need to know or connect with the dots, if you will, to find out when Whole Foods would be even able to welcome these products on their store shelves. Is that part of the equation when you would, you know, be looking at, you know, developing these products for uh, for sale? Well, you know what, David, I would. Um, I don't think it, w- it wouldn't come into at least my in my planning um, during the development stage. I kind of would just work on the development because so many things yeah. change during the development time. You think you got the recipe right. You think you got the right manufacturer. You think you got the right packaging, and then it sways, and that can sway 
you know, can put you out another three months, another six months, and you start blowing by some of the reviews. So I really didn't start looking until the review schedule until I really got close to the end on wrapping up the pro- the, the project. So got what it. would happen is once I scheduled an actual production run, which would probably be three months um, in advance, I would start looking at the reviews because I could count on products starting to be in hand. I knew I'd be able to ship, and I wouldn't be um, just giving lip service to somebody that I would be able to deliver right. product. Right. That's a good. That's a great point. That's a great point. Let's uh, let's kind of step uh, ahead a little bit into the retail broker world. Um, tell us more about that because uh, you know there's. You've always taught me that you know you can try to go it alone, if you will, if you had a particular product, but you always recommend the retail brokers per se. If you can, you take that and run with that. Um, you know, tell us about retail brokers. Sure. Um, when I was a young punk kid coming out of college and starting that first company to sell retail, I, you know, of course you're young and stupid and you think you can do everything oh, on yeah. your own. And as I had these, you know, some of these products that I thought were the best in the world. <laughs> Uh, I said, oh, you know what, I can make this appointment with Stop and Shop. I'll go down there and do this. And luckily, I had some good mentors to say, wait, this business has really worked with brokers. Kind of like 99% of the people, when you go to sell or buy a house, what do you use? Use a broker. Why? Because they they know their local market. They know the regulations in the market. They know all the nuances of buying and selling in that particular market. The same can be said for the retail brokers that you would want to use. And they do vary by channel, so you would have to look at multiple brokers. But let's just start with, uh, say we were calling on the uh, stopping shops of the world in the mainstream grocery channel. So you would look for probably a broker in the Northeast that does mainstream grocery, that understands all the nuances of those chains. And what I found is when I would go in with this broker to pitch a product, they would know which questions to ask. They knew the personality of the particular buyers that we were going to see. They knew the hot buttons of the buyers that we were going to see. They knew the stresses that they were under. So we really understood how to position the product and the price points to get the highest probability of success when we went into that presentation. What also they brought to the table is there's this little fun word called slotting when you go into a lot of the mainstream (laughs) grocers. And that slotting is a fee that you pay for the privilege of being on the shelf before you oh. can even get there. And we could we could talk about slotting, David, I think it probably in one segment on its own. But you're paying right. basically paying an upfront rental fee to be on the shelf. It's a one time fee. Uh and it's negotiable. But they don't if you went in by yourself, nobody's gonna tell you it's negotiable. So you might say I remember looking at uh pizza the slotting cost to put pizza in the in the freezer case. It was $75,000 for one flavor of pizza. Uh, now, that, oh. varies. that varies between categories drastically, and it's sure. highly negotiable. Um, so what the broker knows is because he represents other lines and has had done business at the particular chain many times before, how you can negotiate that fee. Can you pay it? Do you have to pay it in the check up front? Can you pay it with free product over time? Uh, there's many mm. different ways to skin that cat, and they bring that value to the table. So they are an integral piece to it. They also understand all of the paperwork that goes on to not just the upfront of getting it placed, but ongoing. What paperwork needs to be filled out at what time? How many promotions right. are we going to do during the year? And how do we submit those promotions and to who? Then it backs into they also know who the distributors are in the market because you normally don't sell direct to a supermarket. You will sell to a distributor, and that distributor sell will get it onto the shelf for the supermarket. So the broker will know, okay, Stop and Shop wants to use 
UNFI, United Natural Foods. So they know, okay, we right. need to call Bob from United Natural Foods and get the paperwork going with them. So they bring a lot of value to the table. And uh, quite frankly, I felt they're necessary. Unless you become a a craft or a PNG where you can right. have all of these direct reps that just spend their time calling on these accounts, I would say anybody else, uh, brokers, you're going to need. Man, <laughs> and the slotting fee, you're right. Goodness gracious. I mean, yeah, for somebody that's walking in off the streets and doesn't understand the market and doesn't understand the business, I mean, your best friend would, would, be, that, um, would be that retail broker because otherwise you're just winging it on your own. Unbelievable. Yeah. Jeez. Yep. Well, one of the one of the other yeah, and there's a and and again, that's I think that the the thing that a lot of people don't don't really realize is is all the different nuances to it. Um, I remember you and I were chatting um, about Wal Walmart, and I had historically heard over the years that Walmart was difficult to work with, and Walmart was the you know the you know you'd go to Bentonville, Arkansas, and they're just colossal, you know, just mean and nasty. And you said just the opposite. You were you were, you know, you had said something along the lines of, "No, it was just the opposite." I mean, they were extremely fair um, when you worked with them um, and you negotiated, a, you know, to sell them something for a dollar. You'd get paid the dollar. There were no games. And I just, you know, can you elaborate elaborate a little bit more about your experience working with Walmart because they're kind of a, you know, one of those major players out there in their own little world. Tell us a little bit more about uh, working with Walmart. Sure, I think there's a stigma about Walmart uh, perpetuated from the press about they're the nasty negotiators that kind of kill all of their suppliers. Now, I can only speak from my experience, which has been no different, I think, in dealing with many of the retailers that they are tough negotiators. But that can be said for any industry when you're pitching a product and they want to buy that product. What I find I, I like quite a bit about Walmart is when you sell it to them and they agree on a price, they pay you that price. And that kind of sounds almost like common sense. But in actuality, with some of the retail grocers around the country, what I found is you know that when you sell it out for a buck, they might send you back 85 cents. There's a lot of deductions that go on. There's things, promotions, shrink, um, I could get into a lot of the details, but I found yeah. over the years there's a lot of BS-type deductions that go right. on, and sure. that's how the game is played. Now, I'm sure there will be people that want to argue with me, but 20 years of experience tells me otherwise that I, right. I, bake that, I bake that into the margin. I know when I set my price, there's going to be some of this baloney coming back to me. But when I go with Walmart, I get they get, a, they get my best price because I know I can, for the 99% of the time, I can count on getting paid whole on that money that I built them. And what ends up happening is what's what's very interesting is when you do your analysis of your own company, uh, I'd bet you a cup of coffee that every time you do the analysis, Walmart will tend to be one of your most highest profitable customers that you would have because of none of that stuff coming back on uh, on the back end. Incredible. I mean, goodness. And and you had mentioned um, a great tidbit for – when we were chatting about Walmart before, and that one of the things that that kind of kills a lot of the newer companies that don't have experience with selling to Walmart was was something where they 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 kind of go in too low, or they don't give themselves or their what was that again? I think they 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 just kind of I forget how you mentioned it, but they they frankly price themselves out of business, if you will. Does that make sense? 
It, it does. You know, you have to get a fair price for your product. You have to think about, you know, the the your eyes get big when you think about the number of units or stores that Walmart has in the U.S. and the amount of volume that you could do. But you have to make sure you get a fair price. You have to make sure that you can cover your overhead and you can actually make some money. It's really easy to fall into the trap to say, you know what, I just want to get it in there. I just want to get my, right. I want to hit my minimum runs in my manufacturing. I want to get this going. But you really need to get the fair price. But Walmart's not an innovator anyways. So what you're going to find is you need to get penetration in other channels before Walmart would look at it. Most of the time, Walmart's going to ask you for some of the Nielsen or market data um, that's going to show that you have penetration across the country in particular regions before they'll put you into their stores. So they're not really a leader when it comes to putting in new products. Uh, So you really have to make a good case for your products to come in outside of being a good price and a good tasting product. Right. And then and then the other thing you'd mentioned too is was that you got to make sure that and I think people underestimate the absolute magnitude of volume that when you do get that order with Walmart, you've got to be able to deliver. I mean, there's a lot of times people get that order and they think Oh, this is no big deal. Then that the order comes back for three million pieces, and they can only you know literally put through three hundred thousand. Then then they're really in trouble. That, that's right, David. You know, I think you know they really you can underestimate the volume that they can do. And Walmart does a very good job about scoring their vendors. So you get a vendor scorecard. How are you performing? Are your deliveries on time? Uh, are, there, are there breakages? And if you don't score correctly, you can be booted out. Um, so you have to make sure operationally you can handle it. And I think one of the things that I really appreciated working with you is as we ramped up in some of those projects, your flexibility to help me cover because you saw me make some mistakes. I estimated you know a couple hundred thousand units of packaging, and I'm calling you, David. Hey, um, by the way, can you get me a million units of packaging <laughs> tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man. I know, but we we got it together. We got it through. That's all. That's all about communication, man. It's all about communication. Unbelievable. Yes, we did. Oh man, well this was fun, Jason. I I can't thank you enough. I mean, just it, I could I could spend it. And I'm I'm telling you, I can already I can already say it. I'm going to have you back for interviews three, four, five, and six because there's just so many things. Slotting fees. There's there's more questions about brokers. There's more questions about the different channels and the military. And I know that Trader Joe's is kind of this oddball that fits out there. So plenty of stuff for you and I to talk with down the road, my friend. But I want to wrap it up here to say thank you again for taking the time to join us for Ditch the Box. And, um, man, it's it's just been a thrill. And I'm, and I'm grateful for your friendship as well. My pleasure, David. Uh, it's been a it's been a great ride with you. You've been a great friend and a you know a mentor to me, teaching me all about this packaging world. So I, anything I can do to help, anytime. Thanks, brother. You've got a great product, and it's now on the store shelves at all the major big box retailers. So what's the problem? You are getting squeezed. Cost reductions are demanded from the retailers, and they are not letting up. So what are you going to do? You can give in and watch your margins disappear and hope you can make them up with other clients or with other products. You can say no and watch the retailers make deals with your competitors. Or you could say yes, because you've discovered a way to increase your margins and even get lost margins back. 
At StandUpPouches.net, we live and breathe flexible retail packaging. We have factories that can run as few as 5,000 pieces and scale to millions without any change in quality. We are ISO 9000 and ISO 14000 approved and offer complete supply chain solutions using our Ohio warehouse. Your retail packaging is the voice of your brand. Don't use inferior packaging. Choose packaging that not only protects, but keeps products fresher for longer while building your brand. To learn more, visit us at www.standuppouches.net or call us at 866-440-2123. Thanks for listening to Ditch the Box. We're live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. Please join David Maranak for another great show next week.